This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. For this edition, I took a trip to Hayes near Heathrow on the outskirts of West London to visit Matt Hunter, the managing director of the Central Research Laboratory. Now, location is an important part of this story. The Central Research Laboratory is actually situated on the site of the old EMI factory, an area which is being regenerated with a mixture of residential and commercial and leisure usage. Now, as Matt goes on to explain in our discussion, it was partly this history around this location which led to the launch of the Central Research Laboratory as this unique partnership between Brunel University, the property regeneration specialist UNI, and the Higher Education Funding Council for England. The CRL's overall mission is to accelerate startups which are at the intersection of digital innovation and physical manufacturing. Now, Matt's own background spans both academia and industry. He worked at IDEO from 1995 until 2009 and went on to be made a partner in the firm. Uh, He's also tutored at the Royal College of Art, Imperial College, and he served as Chief Design Officer for the Design Council. So here's our conversation, and don't forget, you can find show notes which link to everything we discuss at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach us on Twitter at MexFeed or by email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Okay, so Matt, delighted that you can join me for this. Um, As I was coming up to the building today, it's got quite a distinctive presence. You know, as you come off the, the road into yeah. it, you see that big slogan across the top of the building. His master's voice written large across the, the top of the building. Can you remember the first time that you saw the site here and what impact it made on you? The first time I saw the site was actually in pictures. So I could see much more clearly the pictures, let's say, perhaps of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, when it was in its heyday. And you got a scale of the site. It was 20 acres up to, I think, 20,000, 15 to 20,000 workers. Um, Pictures of the insides of the uh, buildings. For instance, here we are in the shipping building. And so you'd imagine this this is where people were shipping around large amounts of, of vinyl records. Um, we saw pictures of people uh, slotting the vinyl into the into the sleeves, the beautiful kind of gatefold s- sleeves. And um, that all took place in a, and a separate building, all of its own. D- different buildings. There's the the cabinet building next door, I think, where they often built gramophones. What was really interesting about this place, it speaks to things which people recognise these days in the digital world, is so much the system matters. It's not just enough to create. Um, a particular product like a, a, a form of music in terms of vinyl records you need to make the things that you listen to the music on as well so this place developed not only kind of gramophones but then stereo sound 
It even developed multi-track tape recording, which is how you got all the instruments recorded effectively in a studio, and then moved on to things like uh, broadcast technologies for TV, such as colour TV cameras, and beyond that even into medical and aerospace. So the history of this site is amazing, not just because of uh, it being the, sort of the epicentre of British um, and, and therefore a real serious uh, international part of the music industry, but also that it was um, a real technology R&D hub. Um, and so, yes, when I first saw this, this building for real, um, it was exciting, but somehow also very sad that this uh, 20th century uh, activity had clearly declined, had, had, this had been almost a, a, a complete sort of wasteland in the 1980s and 1990s, and, and the job, therefore, in the early noughties in 2005, when you and I, the regeneration specialists, purchased the site, was to breathe life back into it. So, you know, great, great history, um, but, but potentially a, a great future. But the, the, the present was decidedly um, miserable, I think. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point at which to, to come into it. And, and just for uh, you know, people, for instance, who might, might be listening internationally and might not be familiar with the brand, his master's voice, you know, was something that had a real presence, certainly in the UK and beyond. Maybe not to all parts of the world, but just tell yes. me a little bit about that that brand heritage and how they they came to be here. You know, with yeah. so much of their operation based on this one site. Yes, um, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure exactly why it started here. It actually started as a typewriter company. Um, before becoming um, a, a music company. And there were various mergers of, of, of music companies and ultimately an Anglo-American merger that created EMI. But along the way, um, this, uh, uh, this, this tagline actually, his master's voice, the picture of the dog staring into the, uh, the gramophone with this huge horn shape coming out of it. In other words, the fidelity, the sound quality of this gramophone was so good that this dog was tricked into thinking that his master <laughs> was inside it. Um, so yes, it's sort of a, a, a very um, uh, memorable image um, that was really just a sort of a trademark of, of this sub-brand of EMI. Um, but as I say, it was essentially, it became, became an Anglo-American company and that's how it became this sort of this massive this colossus, really, that, that, that strode the world. And then again, in its later stages, it was linked more up with British consumer electronics and other things. So, so Thorn was a very big company, so it became Thorn EMI. And, and you had all these sorts of mergers. Again, sometimes a bit of a, an indicator of something coming to the end of its life. And certainly EMI Records still exists, but, but again, the, the uh, music industry has had a, um, uh, had a tumultuous few decades with digital technology um, and that you know they continue to, to, to find their way but but nevertheless with with 20,000 people on site I mean this haze grew up around EMI in the same way you could argue that in Philips in Holland you know Eindhoven has grown up around Philips so it really was something of that scale where where actually um, the suburb um, of, of, of Hayes that's now really been incorporated um, with the, the, the wider London sprawl and especially the development of Heathrow Airport, which is just 10 minutes away, um, that uh, uh, you know, th th this is sort of some of how it all developed. It really was, um, Hayes was really developed and, and the train tracks coming out here is really developed around um, EMI records. And 
Now, the, the name that you go under and what you are managing director is the Central Research Laboratory. Does that also have a historical link back to, to the site? Yes, it does. So, as I was saying, where um, it wasn't just about the records, it was about the gramophones and then the, the multi-track recorders and then the, the airborne radar and the CAT scanners, the Central Research Laboratories was indeed the R&D department of EMI. Um, and so when the property developers, you and I, looked at this site and they wanted to breathe life back into it, not only did they want to look back at the uh, record industry, the music industry heritage, and remind people of that and how, how special that was, but also to celebrate the technology-based R&D, because I think while the UK remains from memory something like the 11th biggest manufacturer in the world, um, this is mostly focused on aerospace and automotive. These are the two sort of major industries that make up the bulk of manufacturing. Instead, the, 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 the more consumer products end of things, uh, where you might deal with TVs and radios and all that sort of thing, you know, that's, that's really died. So I think that when you and I wanted to reimagine the space, they felt we're not just going to make flats and shops and, and name them after uh, you know, the, 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 the former activities that were in the buildings. Let's see if we can stimulate some business. So in other words, we're not just going to create a business park where you can come and have any business. Let's stimulate it. Let's create almost a magnet to draw people together. And given that this was a place about making, what would be the 21st century equivalent of the Central Research Laboratory? So firstly, it wouldn't be a central laboratory. It wouldn't be an in-house R&D. It would be a place for startups. And secondly, rather than us just making a place for software startups, let's really say, well, actually, this place used to make physical things. We've seen a massive uh, growth in this idea of the maker movement, the democratization of making the, 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 or the Internet of Things, this idea that we know, we recognize that we still live in a physical world. Let's not forget that innovation needs to be about the physical artifacts around us and indeed blending the physical and the digital. Yeah, that's a very interesting intersection to be working. Because you say you've got the, the motivations there and perhaps um, you know, the quite forward-thinking motivations of this property developer, you and I, saying that you know, this particular site has a resonance for people and that when we think about the redevelopment of land and spaces in general, we need to think beyond the models that we're working with currently. And then, as you see, you've also got this coming together of that inspiration around um, hardware and integrated hardware and digital experiences, which potentially are the, this next generation of, of products. Yes. Um, and how did, did you personally pick up on that and, and get involved? You know, are those things where you have had an interest in the past, or was this something which you just saw out of the blue as a, an interesting opportunity to get stuck into? This is very much something that um, aligns with my personal story, my personal career. I trained in the late 80s as an industrial designer, so the design of physical artifacts. Um, and by the time I graduated, I thought to myself, not only was it a mini recession in 1992, um, but also it felt like I was being taught stuff that was about the decline of an industry. It felt like we were at the tail end of something. And pretty swiftly, I retrained as an interaction designer. Not that that terminology was really around at that point. The World Wide Web was still a few years away from being unleashed from Tim Berners-Lee's 
uh, computer at, at CERN in Switzerland. Yeah, so, so I read through What are we talking about platform-wise here? I'm imagining CD-ROMs and kiosks and, and that sort of thing. Yes, I mean, let's let's remember that the Macintosh was created in 1984, so mm. that was amazing. So we're, let's say, 10 years on from the Macintosh, so we've got plenty of graphic user interfaces. Microsoft has recognized that they also need to make graphic user interfaces, so Windows has been born uh, running all you know on, on all these sort of uh, IBM based PCs not not MS DOS um, but we really don't have much connection we've probably got some email by this point uh, that's the main internet sort of application but really we don't have beyond the odd sort of uh, user gr- online user group we don't have that mass adoption and it's really not until 1994 that we begin to see the early web browsers such as mosaic and others um, yeah. that, that, that give people that sense of, of, of what we have now. So, so we had no, no possible imagination of what would happen. But for me in that world, despite the fact that the internet, sorry, the World Wide Web wasn't very developed, the early digital products were coming out. So I worked on the first consumer digital camera for Kodak. I worked on TiVo, the sort of, uh, sort of set-top box equivalent mm-hmm. of Sky Plus that, that Virgin uses. The first generation, we invented sort of thumbs up, thumbs down. How do you how do you sort of program this thing or, or t- tell it what you like? I worked on early stage digital devices, um, office devices. So in other words, we were trying to generate this first generation of hardware and software fusions. They weren't necessarily connected products. They were often tethered to a to a PC, to a Macintosh, in order to download the photos or do, do whatever else you were doing. And then over time, I became I came back from California to London and worked more in. in Fields of, sort of service design and experience design, and then I spent and five. This was your time with, with IDEO. Was so this is right? IDEO, yeah. yeah. So it's an amazing uh, thing to uh, to retrain uh, as an interaction designer. I started to get my first job in San Francisco, yeah. um, and so that was a great education to work with some of these um, amazing pioneers that had often made money from computers. So the guy who set up TiVo um, actually had made some of the top end uh, computer workstations. And indeed, those workstations were particularly good at graphics and motion graphics. And that's why he had all the chipsets required, essentially, to process TV, which was quite a hard thing to do in the late 90s, between 1998, 1999. So it was really interesting to see these early sort of computer pioneers then actually want to move into these first digital appliances. Well, that's an interesting thing about you know, the, the West Coast of the US and Silicon Valley and, and that area in particular, which I think... Perhaps these days when they're so known for um, you know, the software and services giants that are you know, the currents and favorites of that, but the history of that area is very much about that strength in manufacturing and the creation of those complete product experiences. Uh, did those experiences that you had out there in the West Coast inform some of your thinking now about what a, an organization like the Central Research Laboratory can do around accelerating those integrated hardware experiences in particular? It definitely made me feel when I brought all of my skills together in, in sort of physical product design, in interaction design, and in service design, um, and, and other things besides, that if we weren't, if we, if, if we at the CRL were not encouraging people to embrace digital technology and physical fabrication and find new fusions of those things, then we weren't being 21st century. So, in other words, we see an awful lot of interest in making physical things. Many of the times we're using digital methods to make. In other words, we could 3D print something, but ultimately the artifact itself may be quite dumb. It may just be some bits of plastic. 
for me, that isn't enough. I mean, yes, using digital fabrication, using digital retailing and fulfillment, those are all, 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 all very positive. But for me, unless we're really exploiting um, digital to the greatest extent, the chances are we're not making the most scalable businesses we can. So, for instance, um, one of the things that fascinates many people these days is saying, actually, while physical products are important, maybe we will own them far less. Maybe they will be part of services. So, for instance, I don't really own my set-top box from Sky. I kind of do, but really it's theirs. Um, many people don't own cars anymore because they use car clubs. Um, my bike, uh, local bike shop uh, just sent me a questionnaire last week saying, would you prefer... Uh, just to have an easy monthly payment and then we we give you a new bike every 18 months and essentially it's a bike rental model. So I think lots and lots of people these days are trying to understand how do we have a new relationship with, with, with physical things. Sometimes that's to do with the commercials actually making it almost more profitable. Um, Sometimes it's about economic, sorry, environmental sustainability. We all know how much stuff we buy that then we don't know how to get rid of when we don't want it or love it anymore. Um, actually, if I'm renting something, then of course it's the uh, it goes back to the business when I don't want it, and in that way they make better use of the materials and resources that have gone into that thing. Uh, and sometimes it's actually about relationships in this modern world of social media um, and services. Businesses really want to have a much deeper relationship with their customers to understand their needs and ultimately, I suppose, sell them more things, give them more things that work for them. With products, often what's happened is you make it, you ship it, maybe it goes through a distributor and then a retailer. I have no idea who's bought my stuff. I don't really know what they want. I don't really have a relationship with them anymore. You know, if I sell an object through Amazon, I learn very little potentially about where that has gone. So I think for multiple reasons now, um, the way in which products and services um, and brands and relationships between consumers and suppliers, they're all changing. So it's a, it's a, there's a lot to play for at the moment. We're not sure what it all means, but we certainly feel we're in the right, in the right place. Now, CRL, Central Research Laboratory, is an accelerator, I guess it is how you would define yourselves. Um, and I mean, let's talk about the role that you can play as an accelerator amid those different strands, which I think you're absolutely right about, of how those different worlds are converging, how those business models are changing. But what's your ambitions um, for this organization as an accelerator and the role that it can play specifically to, to make those bits happen better for the companies that you work with? Yes, well firstly I should explain that actually um, as of sort of uh, this quarter were more than an accelerator so now we can offer we have a, a much wider space 10,000 square feet and our, our goal is to, to be the home of hardware in West London meaning that you can turn up as a hardware entrepreneur or somewhere interested in, 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 in the making of physical stuff and scalable businesses but you could be renting a desk as much as you could be part of an accelerator so but back to but back to the accelerator, the point is an accelerator is essentially a mechanism by which people who have an idea but probably don't have much, all the knowledge they need and, and, and contacts and almost certainly don't have all the money they need, they get intensive support and cash to help get their idea to market. So we take on board every year between 10 and 12 businesses that have an idea, often they have a, a prototype. Um, and we want to get them to being a scalable business. 
What that requires is really essentially two things we think of in terms of education. On the one hand, we need to help them better understand how to design things for manufacture. There's a wide gulf between designing something that looks great and apparently might work, designing some physical prototype and actually getting it replicated in hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, possibly across the world. And it's interesting, I think, also that that knowledge about what it is to manufacture has evaporated somewhat from the, you know, the, the UK networks. And I think many cities around the UK are trying to get back all of that knowledge that's either evaporated or it's become sequestered within these large corporate players. So in other words, the knowledge about how to design for manufacture is not easily accessible to small startups. That, that is very interesting. I mean, how do you do that? Because I think as an accelerator, you know, of which particularly in, in London now and worldwide, you know, there are many accelerators, but you have this specific focus about um, bringing in those manufacturing skills and giving people that extra edge to be able to, to, to do that in a scalable way. Yeah. But how do you get back to, to finding where that knowledge exists, yeah. you know, where that knowledge is at its best, and then flowing that into some of these, uh, these startups? I think that's where, again, I, I use the word sort of a hub or the home of hardware. If you see yourself as a sort of an epicenter, then you attract all those necessary things. So as a physical space, we do not cram people in, in the way that you might do in a sort of central London co-working facility. We need space here because we've got four physical workshops that with all the equipment required in order to make physical things and electronic things and uh, to make uh, prototypes, but also early batches. You know, you may make 20 or 30 prototype units, then for, them for a trial. Um, but you also need the space for people to make physical stuff. You know, we're so used now to just working on our laptops. So these very subtle differences about the scale of space are important to attract people. Secondly, though, so, so what happens, therefore, is you bring people together and they're attracted by these physical facilities, but then they start to help one another. So the first level of knowledge is just peer knowledge. Each startup has a sort of a common mission, but very different sort of journeys and very different strengths and weaknesses, so they can help one another. But secondly, when we're thirdly, maybe, when we're helping uh, bring on board expertise, we have some of it is in our core team. We have sort of user-centered design and industrial design and mechanical engineering and electrical engineering in our core team. But also we have a network of, of mentors um, to, to support with, with sort of expert needs. And then also we have, we're beginning to bring on online the deep research and experts from Brunel University. So one of our teams is dealing with a sort of a stylus that requires a very precise understanding of magnetic fields. And actually there's a great expert within Brunel who can really help bring his knowledge in magnetic fields to this individual. Which is a wonderful thing to be able to tap into. And I guess uh, for, for those who don't know, um, by virtue of geography, you are almost neighbours with Brunel University here, which you know, having access to those facilities and those people you know, just becomes that, that bit easier, I suppose, by, uh, by having that nearby. I think that's it. So our relationship with Brunel University is, is, is many aspects to it. But on the one hand, we draw in their graduates because they are often the entrepreneurs that are the founders of these businesses. Um, so it's a great route uh, through to realizing ideas. But then secondly, it's about getting the, all the research that can often only see the, the, the light of day through academic research papers. How does it get um, 
delivered almost through these startups as well. So on both counts, this sense of entrepreneurship as a career path and about sort of research made real and, 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 and made valuable. Um, these are sort of two of the ways in which we relate to, uh, to, to Brunel University. And I think the good news is that actually we have a relationship with many other universities as well in terms of their talent pools, Royal College of Art, Imperial College as well, just to name two others. So also what's I think interesting about this place is that Brunel University R London recognised that just to make a startup incubator themselves on their campus would be not as effective as collaborating with us to make something off campus. In other words, something that with the best one in the world might end up as monocultural may only uh, is, is not as something that, 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 that is, is, is more powerful, that is more multicultural. And I think that's another interesting aspect of all of this. People recognise these days that innovation is as much about getting the right cultures together as much as it is about the right talents and the right processes. And so the fact that we are, again, at AM to be this hub, which is very open, where people can, can come from very diverse backgrounds, means that actually we get a richness and breadth and depth to the knowledge base that no single institution could create by itself. Yeah, that, I think that, that point about culture is well made. I mean, over the years that we've been around the MEX initiative, for instance, I mean, I think that's when it's been at its most effective, is when it's bringing together um, the most diverse range of participants, either at, say, the conferences that we do or the dinners or in the information that we bring together. And I think that that's true of uh, any organisation which sort of sits at the intersection of these different worlds. The more you can uh, add to the diversity of those worlds, the more you can draw from different talent pools and establish those relationships, the more effective it, it is. Uh, but as a, a hub, you, know, you use that word hub to, to describe mm. it, um, clearly, there's the interactions between the participants who are here on a daily basis, you know, who are residents. Um, but then I'm guessing there's also um, you know, a wider effort beyond that with things like events and the way in which you interact with those different communities and bring in you know, temporary participants to, to, to widen that. Uh, is that something which is up and running already or is that something which is coming later down the line you know, with event it's, programs? And yeah, it's, it's, it's building. I think, mm -hmm. I think that um, what we have at the core is almost a curriculum you know what what are the things you need i've already spoken about the product development curriculum but easily equally there's a one around you know business development how do i set up a business how do i begin to gain colleagues how do i find funding how do i um uh, begin to understand more about distribution or business models um how do i how do i begin to uh, generate my my first consumer so there is a curriculum that works both on that product development uh, side and also that business development side and then yes on top of that then um, is uh, I suppose events or, or sort of meetups where you a get to meet with other um, entrepreneurs that may not be in this particular hub but are somewhere within the network and then secondly um, entrepreneurs that have been through it already so one of the key things always with um, entrepreneurship and accelerators is to get those that are two, three, four years ahead of you and get the stories from them. So we're very lucky also that many entrepreneurs that are only a few years ahead of where our cohorts are, are very willing to come back and give talks and uh, explain all the mistakes they made um, and uh, all the successes uh, in order that others can follow more successfully in their footsteps. Um, because I think more than anything, if you speak to um, 
investors, if you speak to angel investors or venture capital uh, investors, you get almost the most dispassionate view on this space. You see, and that's really important because all of us are very passionate about this. As I said, you know, my first degree was in this sort of subject area at a moment when it felt it was all slipping away out of the UK's fingers. So we're very passionate about it. And it's always very good to get the, the, the opposite view. And the opposite view is essentially that this is all very exciting, but making hardware startups is still relatively slow compared with software relatively capital intensive because you've got to make physical stuff and relatively risky because it is complex and so much of the knowledge doesn't quite exist in the right places yet. And so this is really important because ultimately what we've got to do is as not just as, a, as an accelerator and as a hub ourselves, but as a wide network of interested parties, we have to find ways to make hardware even more investable. What we are seeing at the moment, which is fascinating, I think, is that the first wins are definitely coming from crowdfunding. So whether it's Kickstarter or Indiegogo in this sort of fulfillment crowdfunding, the idea that I might have some people pre-purchasing effectively, or from equity crowdfunding platforms like Crowdcube, where actually people are investing in my business. These funding platforms are working very well for hardware entrepreneurs. Now, it may be a mixture that a physical object is actually a really exciting thing these days. We've almost become bored with apps, and now we see some physical thing. This is magic. This is amazing. So there's something where the very kind of visual nature often of these platforms is probably chiming. But also at the same time, of course, these are mostly amateur um, investors. They are probably more emotive, saying, I want a thing rather than I want to get a t- five to 10x return on my investment in your business. So again, I think we're, we're seeing some early signs of success, but actually when you go to the angel investors and the, and the venture capitalists, they're still relatively cautious and that's really our job. How do we de-risk or how do we increase the value of uh, hardware-based startups so that they are seen as a really powerful investment opportunity for um, more than just a fringe of investors? Well, as you say, that um, that notion of the story around hardware in particular, and especially for those kind of um, consumers, customers, users, whatever you want to call them, who are using platforms like Kickstarter to fund these things, where um, they probably do gravitate more towards the early adopter part of the spectrum. They're very familiar with the digital world, spending a lot of time in the digital world. There is something powerful about the story of a piece of, of hardware and I guess one of the interesting things with the uh, structure of something like Kickstarter funding is that actually now the creators are able to share that story in advance and involve those consumers in the story from an earlier um, time in, in the process. Whereas when you think back to a history of a site like this, it was a world where things were made, a history developed around it, a story developed around it, and consumers learned that at a much later part in that process. Do you, do you think that sort of inversion of the way in which those stories are told around products is actually going to have an influence on the kind of hardware, uh, the kind of product experiences which come out of that process? When you think about some of the um, uh, you know, initial residents that you've got here and the sort of things they're working on, are you seeing an effect that that ability to involve users in the story earlier on is actually having on their products? Definitely, that's the case. I think that um, 
it is fascinating to see this modern world. Um, we've already discussed about the role of digital technology, and so that there is absolutely this role of digital technology in growing your the, the market of lead users, kick, kickstarting your your sales. But what is very interesting, of course, is, is as pe- many commentators have said, this is not just the, the consumer economy, this is the contribution economy. So one uh, of the ventures that's here that's going to be uh, running a Kickstarter campaign early next year, probably sort of February, March, is called Jotto, J-O-T-O. And they describe it as a sort of a, a sort of magical display, a smart display that uses a pen. What's interesting is it's a... Um, a a display of sort of portrait uh, display the size of a sort of medium-sized picture you might hang on your wall and it's got a pen plotter on it essentially and while you can put tweets on it and lists and things like that the thing that's most evocative I find is some of the kind of the unique art that gets drawn on there so as soon as you think of it as a canvas um, that will draw amazing little doodles just for you and your family or your colleagues wherever you've hung this on the wall you need a group of graphic artists to to supply all the artwork so what's interesting there is you've got a product as a platform Mm. and so as soon as you have a product as a platform you need a community around it and so in this case the community is both uh, sort of we might argue sort of communities that make a particular use case come alive, such as unique arts, you know, turning up on your wall. What if, what if Tracy Emin would make one of her lovely little pen doodles and that would turn up on your wall? That would be amazing. Um, but equally, uh, you need an army to work out what are the other possibilities for this device? Uh, this is a really unusual form of display and communication. What more could be done? Well, let's create an API. So the, the, um, the, the Giotto guys have created a, an API, a, a way for, for people to kind of hack and play with this. And so they will find out as this thing is launched, what else could this be used for? So that, that makes me feel this is a very, very modern device, not only changing our perception of what display should be like, what connected products should be like, what they should feel like, what they should be used for, but that relationship with the consumers uh, who are really collaborators in many regards, trying to make the, make the thing a success, um, champions really just as much as consumers. Well, I suppose that's where you know, that, that integration of digital into the overall experience uh, is at its strongest, is when it enables some of those virtues about scale and reach and community involvement to become inherent in a, a hardware product, which hitherto has been quite a difficult thing to do just by virtue of the logistics involved and the, you know, the, the scale of those kind of operations. You know, one of the beauties of software and purely digital experiences is that very easily you can disseminate them out to a very wide audience of people and you can see the different ways in which they're used, you can track them, you can iterate based on that. Whereas that's just been much harder on just a purely physical basis with yes. this hardware. But as those two worlds start to come together, you know, at its best, that's when you get really magical things happening to, to products. And I think this sort of raises another important point, which is one might have imagined that these rather complicated businesses that need to be set up where you are fusing hardware and software and products and service and expecting to have these very sophisticated relationships with the customers, you might have expected only a large corporation could have the wherewithal to make that happen, mm. right? How on earth does an underfunded, bootstrapped little entity of like two, one or two or three people to begin with, how on earth does it begin to create something so, uh, so complicated? 
And that's where, again, I think our vision is, is informed very much by the app economy. You know, what happened from sort of mid-2000s onwards, especially with the iPhone and the iPad and all of the other kind of smartphones and tablets that were created, was that an individual in their bedroom with a laptop could, could hack out a bit of software, often in little as, I don't know, a day or two weeks or something like that. They could put it up on a store and they could have tens, thousands, millions of users uh, within a few weeks. Very little money spent, very narrow range of skills employed, actually, because so much of that infrastructure from the cloud services that would power it to the development tools that would create it to the online stores that would just, you know, to, to, to promote it to the sort of hardware platforms on which it would run. All of those things were just, they had been created by the multinationals, mm. but the individual in their bedroom could go create that app. So what's the equivalent for hardware? It comes back to this point of when will it be investable? When, how can we get the cycle times quicker? How can we um, make it much easier? So it's interesting. And other things we have to do, obviously, is go and speak to a lot of the, where the manufacturing expertise is, and a lot of that is in China, mm. in Shenzhen especially. And so what's interesting if you go to Shenzhen is they very much have a view that actually rather than a hundred businesses at once developing unique chipsets for wearables, someone should just make lots of really useful, flexible wearable modules. And then if you want to make a wearable, you just get together the processor board, the Bluetooth thing, that sensor, this sensor, glom it together in a package, make some custom software, and there you go, you've got a device. So in other words, how could you reduce the development cycle from, let's say, a year and a half to two years, which is often what it takes to create hardware, to a matter of months. So again, this is where the investors become more excited because they say, yes, if I didn't have to wait a year and a half, two years for you even to launch the damn thing, mm -hmm. then I might be more interested. So will this sense of modularity of almost Lego bricks allowing you to bolt together things in the same way that maybe um, app developers would bolt together different code libraries? Yeah. Um, is that the sort of thing that will accelerate hardware development? Well, I think we're, we're starting to see the first signs of that um, in the consumer sense. And as you rightly um, have pointed out, on the, the supply chain side, you know, the chipset manufacturers have been going down that path of modularity for a while. But we're even starting to see it manifest for end users now with things like LG and their G5 handset. They have this concept of the friends, which are these plug-in companion products that third-party manufacturers can make to a certain specification, but they've done a lot of the heavy lifting on the platform side so that it's easier for those manufacturers to do it. Uh, same with um, Lenovo and their uh, Moto Z handset or Moto Z handset where they have this um, collection of mods, they call them, that you can, as a developer, you can start to create. And again, they're providing those platforms to allow um, third parties to do that. Not yet, perhaps, with the same level of flexibility and low cost that you can create an app, but making it that, that bit easier. So we're starting, I think, to see the first signs of that happening on a mass consumer scale. But when you look at this now, when you think about some of the companies that are coming through the program currently, um, what do you feel are the bits, bits that are missing? We've talked a little bit about the, the investment side of things, and the yeah. fact that that can still be you know, a, a difficult conversation sometimes. Um, but when you look further down the um, actual process of manufacturing, get it out into the hands of consumers, 
if there were you know, a couple of things that you could wave a magic wand and change for the kind of companies that are coming through the program currently, where do you think the efforts need to be concentrated to improve that that downstream side of things? Yeah, I, st- I still think the logistics of, of fulfillment is still a very, a very difficult thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still talking about making batches of, of, of thousands or even tens of thousands of, of, of artifacts, um, assembling them, boxing them somewhere. They exist now in cardboard boxes somewhere. Am I, where are my consumers? You know, it's, it still feels as though we're having to make these batches of things. Um, and it's not quite the just-in-time manufacturing that we might imagine in some other context or even in science fiction. So, I mean, I think it was Dell almost who was who was uh, one of the first great innovators in this space, mm. where essentially you would order your PC online and then they would make it. Whereas in the past, of course, they made tons of standard issue PCs, racked them up and waited for you to come and purchase it. So I still think in some of these models around the sort of just-in-time manufacture, just-in-time fulfillment, these may help alleviate some of the costs and risks associated with, again, making physical stuff and, and having lots of cash tied up in stock and having lots of stock tied up probably in the wrong physical place. So what's the equivalent of Amazon Web Services um, for manufacture? Um, GitHub, all, all of these amazing infra- bits of infrastructure for, for, for the app economy. Can we have uh, the physical manufacturing economy a little bit more turn off, turn on, you know, as I need it. It still feels very much, it's quite lumpy. You've got to go buy tons of stuff. It, feel, it still feels like you've got to go buy a server rather than just go rent yourself some, some space and some, some computing power from, from Amazon. I still think another thing that's also missing is the clarity around vision. You know, people speak about connected products, the Internet of Things, um, and yet this is still quite a loose term. Um, it doesn't really mean a huge amount. And so I think we, we are beginning now to see these different uh, sectors. You know, one of the, in the consumer space, one of the things that's actually taken off uh, remarkably is what we might call edutech. You know, it's about sort of gadgets where either teachers or parents will um, buy them on behalf of the children or the students, the pupils, um, for some educational outcome or some play outcome. So it's interesting that some of these early bits of hardware that are quite kit-like, so I'm thinking of technology will save us, um, or SAM labs and sort of places like this, um, they, there's, there's quite, we've got one here, um, a new startup called Do It Kits, which is very much around the role of uh, digital um, experiments almost that help teachers um, with the science curriculum or, or other sort of curriculum. So it's interesting seeing certain areas, but I, I, I certainly think and we expect that we're going to have to have more specificity in the future. Are we talking about you know, things for the construction technology, constructions of industry, so construction technologies? Are we talking about agriculture? Are we talking about consumer health? Are we talking about education? You know, what are these various areas? Because as I said, one of the things that's most important for startups is gaining those first customers, getting that route to market. And without that deep market knowledge, it can be quite hard to scale up businesses. Um, so I think what's interesting now is that larger corporations are becoming interested in accelerators. And I think they're becoming interested in accelerators partly because um, they see this as a source of innovation. If they've got the customers, if they've got the route to market, if they've got all of the understanding about how you um, take ideas through to success, 
then perhaps the more startups they're exposed to, more that can be a source of innovation for them. Um, but equally, I think they are interested from a cultural point of view. They do recognise this point that if you are part of a larger corporation, it's much more hard for you to be agile, to be truly customer centric, to sort of pivot as you need to when your idea turns out to be not as good as it should be. And I think that many larger corporations are as interested in the uh, cultural transference of a sort of innovation practice as they are in the ideas themselves. Absolutely. And I think that that's true, you know, of the hardware world and um, perhaps where more of our, our mix listeners are involved in the world of digital and the virtual space too. We hear exactly the same sort of conversations among the large corporates that participate in the mix community about the value of those sort of external communities and how they can prompt uh, thinking about in, internal innovation within these, these companies. Yeah. Um, now, you've been in the, the managing director seat here for a couple of months now. You were yes. involved for quite a while prior to that before taking on that role formally. Um, but when you think forward uh, to say, if we're having this conversation uh, November 2017 rather than November 2060, yes. um, what are the benchmarks for success at that stage that you're setting for yourself? When will you be able to sit back and say, yes, that's been a good year, we've got to where we, we want to be? What, what are the things that you're yeah. looking out for? Well, I think, firstly, um, in terms of how we have been created, we've been created by this amazing partnership between an academic institution and an academic funder in terms of the Higher Education Funding Council for England and a property developer. So they've set up this, this, this idea. Um, as is often said, it's not just sort of the pioneer that's important, but almost the followers. Who are the joiners? Who are the people who will join us in this journey? So I think for me, one of the benchmarks is very much around significant partnerships, be that either with corporate entities um, or even investment entities, angel networks and venture capitalists and others. So I think that's, de that's definitely um, part of feeling that you're not just the lone crazy person here, that, that, that there are more people who, as I say, are uh, more dispassionate than you. I think that's definitely a, a, a very important benchmark. But the primary benchmark, um, I, I still say that secondary to the primary benchmark, which is around the quality of the startups that are coming out there. And I think that's about the, the quality of the, um, the ideas and, and the entrepreneurs that, that we attract, how, what stage are they at? How sophisticated are they in terms of um, their vision? Is this sort of really, really big ideas? But also, of course, those classic metrics about did they manage to raise further funds? You know, is, is, is it, are they beginning to take, take off? So I, what I would say at the moment is, I think we're still taking very much um, early stage entrepreneurs here, often first generation entrepreneurs, and I think that's really important, especially with our connections with Brunel University and other universities. But because we've got this larger space, we can do more than just you know, one accelerator. I would also want to see us supporting much later stage businesses as well, especially those that are uh, gaining later seed rounds, even Series A funding. Because again, that makes it feel as though we are creating scalable hardware businesses here. We're not just creating something that's fascinating, but ultimately in five years time won't really have any impact. Um, so I, th I think it's a, it will be a gradual process. I don't think there'll be any clear moment when we will have arrived. I think this is all about the evolution of something. It's all about the rebuilding actually of confidence and vision as much as action for the UK. 
Um, but I think it is it is about more people recognizing that this isn't just a, a fun, that there's a time when I think people think of the, the maker movement as a sort of a cultural thing, but not really about business. Our job has been to say, no, this is real. You know, there are m- so many exciting entrepreneurs, uh, whether they were born in this country or have come to this country uh, as students or have come to this country as, as later stage entrepreneurs. We know that London can attract great hardware entrepreneurs, but what's, the jury is still out on whether or not we can keep them. In other words, whether or not we can help them scale up their businesses uh, and make them truly effective. Uh, and that will take investment, it will take strong connections to inter, uh, international manufacturing bases, it will, uh, and it will also probably take further support from uh, government even and, and larger corporations. It's a heartening message and having had a bit of a glimpse of the space here today and what you're working on, it feels like the sort of place where that could make it real. So we'll leave links in the show notes um, for listeners so they can check it out themselves in case they have a business which um, or uh, is a potential source of partnership for you as well. Um, And perhaps you will revisit this conversation in a year or so's time and and see how things have progressed. But uh, Matt Hunter, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast and it's been a, a pleasure to share the conversation with you. Thank you very much. So that's it for this edition. Now, if this was your first time listening to the Mex podcast, you might like to know that there's a wealth of additional episodes already out there for you to enjoy in our archive. You can access them all at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, or you can subscribe to the podcast for free uh, on iTunes um, or all of your favorite podcast players just by searching for Mex Design Talk. If you've been listening for a while, we'd really appreciate you taking the time to give us a five-star rating and a positive review on iTunes. This is one of the ways you can help bump Mech's Design Talk up the ratings, uh, and that introduces us to new listeners. Or better still, uh, have a think about any of your friends who might enjoy listening to the show uh, and share a link with them, social media, email. Do please stay in touch. You can reach us with feedback and if you've got suggestions for future shows or interview guests by emailing us designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas and happy holidays from all of the MEX team. We'll see you on the other side. Goodbye.